Thank you for joining us today at Our Savior's Church, where we are one church meeting in seven different locations. We hope that today's message encourages and empowers you on your spiritual journey and helps you grow deeper in your relationship with God. To learn more about Our Savior's Church and how you can get involved, you can visit us online at OurSavior'sChurch.com. We are once again continuing in our series, Who is Jesus? And we have a bit of a, a series within a series happening because we're, we've been camping, in, camping on the point of Jesus as teacher, Jesus the teacher. And in particular, we've been looking at the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded sermon that we have from Jesus in all of Scripture. This is God preaching, talking to us directly for three chapters of the Bible, the longest recorded sermon of Jesus. And he's talking to who? He's not talking to the world. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to his followers, those who have said, I'm committed to following you. And in doing so, he's telling us, this is how you are to live. This is how the people in my kingdom live. This is how they operate. This is, how, this is the intentions of their heart that I want them to have. And so he begins this sermon, as many of you who've been here have been listening, he's been talking, he, talk, he began, excuse me, talking about the Beatitudes, this list of blessings, this list of, of ways that he will bless your life with happiness. Well, it didn't say happiness, it says blessed. Well, blessed and happiness is the same Greek word. And so when Jesus is saying blessed are you, he's saying happy are you. If you are poor in spirit, happier you if you are meek. And he gives us promises attached to that obedience and this happiness, this blessed life, this fulfilled life. And he challenges the way we think when he says that. And then he goes even further to tell us who we are. He tells us, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world. This is who we're called to be. If we follow his design, this is who we are. We're not just people who show up once a week in a building. We're not just people who adhere to a religion. We're the people of God that are his shining lights to a dark world. This is who we are. And he tells us the Beatitudes, and he tells us this. And then he, this message kind of makes a little bit of a turn, and it gets really practical and very deep all at the same time. And Jesus starts teaching us about the law because he tells us, I didn't come to do away with the law like some of you supposed. I didn't come to do away with it. I came to fulfill it. I came to fulfill this law. And then he says something so incredibly challenging, which is going to begin the process of some very challenging things that Jesus says. And can I be upfront with you? This morning will be challenging. And I don't apologize for that. The heart of it is not condemnation. It was never Jesus' heart to be condemning as he taught this message. But it is convicting. And it is exposing. And I, even the saying that I felt the air in the room leave. Some of you went, uh-oh. Listen, I'm giving you lemonade after this. <laughs> My name is Pastor Gabe, and I'm your friend. 
But nonetheless, I want to deliver to you the words of Jesus as he gave them, and I don't apologize for them. Jesus says this. He begins with this very hard, challenging statement. He says, but I warn you, unless your righteousness is better than the righteousness of the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoa. Because in in that day, the people who heard that, they were blown away because, once again, in that day, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, these were the quote-unquote spiritual giants of the day. These were the highly religious, well-behaved people of the day. And Jesus comes along, and I've told you this within, in this message, but Jesus said, excuse me, not Jesus said, but it was thought in that day that if only two people made it to heaven, one of them would be a scribe and one of them would be a Pharisee because they were thought of in such highly righteous terms. And here's Jesus saying, Unless your righteousness is better than theirs, you won't even see the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to help you understand what was he saying. Number one, he was getting ready to expose the, the way they were interpreting certain things in the Bible, in the Old Testament, which was the Bible to them, wrongly. So he was getting ready to expose. They, were, they had taken scriptures and twisted them around to fit their lives. And they followed that pretty well, but they were twisted from the truth. And Jesus was exposing that. And then he was also exposing the fact that the law, which was given to show us, all of us, our sinful nature. The law was given to show us where we fall short. The law was not given to make us feel better than everyone else, yet that's what these religious leaders were doing. They took the law and they made it something that they could feel self-righteous about and condemn others for. And Jesus exposes that. He comes along and he says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. And in doing so, exposes the wickedness of their hearts. How many of you have ever been around people like that? That they just, they don't even have to say it, but they give off this air of, I'm better than you. Don't point. Just. (laughs) Some of you are like. (laughs) And they they don't have to say a word, but they have this air and the snootiness about them that I'm so much more righteous than you are. And it makes us sick to our stomach, but can I be honest, Jesus shows us it makes him sick to his stomach as well. Because the law came to show us our wickedness. And show us our wickedness, it does. Let's keep going. These religious leaders had an outward showing of the law, but inwardly they were evil and wicked. Jesus even went as far as to say, you religious leaders, you Pharisees, which was a good thing in that day, but now we know it almost as a curse word. Jesus said, you religious leaders, you're you're like whitewashed tombstones full of dead men's bones. In other words, you look great on the outside. Everybody's deceived by your, what you're pretending to be, you hypocrites. 
And a hypocrite, what was a hypocrite? A hypocrite actually it came from the, this, this Greek term, which basically means an actor. It is what they would call actors in plays. They called them hypocrites. Jesus is saying, you're acting. You're playing the show. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you are full of death and decay. And that's what he was exposing in the hearts of these quote-unquote religious leaders, but also in us. In Psalms chapter 19, I'm going to come back to this at the end of the message, but it's a scripture some of you have heard before. It says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my what? My heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In other words, Lord, let the things I say, let my actions please you, but also let the very things deep in my heart please you. Let the things I ponder on please you. Let the things I meditate on please you. Let the motivation and intentions of why I did that action please you. How many of you know you can do the right thing for the wrong reason and it's still the wrong thing? So Jesus began after that talking about anger and how, you know, you say, I've never killed anybody. Are you a good person? I've never killed anybody. Jesus says, if you're angry with a person without just cause, you've already killed them. You've already committed the act. You've so belittled them that you don't even view them as human. You've already murdered them. You've murdered their reputation. You've canceled them like they were nothing. Jesus says, you're guilty of murder. Jesus says, if you look at a woman lustfully, you've, all, you've already committed the act of adultery. You say, I've never, never cheated on my wife. Jesus says, really? Every time you look at that woman and undress her with your eyes, you committed the act. Whew. Strong teaching by Jesus, but then he goes even further. He says this. Verse 31, and this is very connected to the last thing he said. But he says, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. But I say that a man who divorces his wife unless she has been unfaithful causes her to commit adultery. And anyone who marries a woman, a divorced woman, also commits adultery. Now this may seem like it's different than the last two things Jesus talked about because the first two things seem like they're all about the heart. But then it seems like Jesus gives us just this hard, fast rule. And at first glance, that's what it looks like, but I want to explain it to you because Jesus is still very much talking about the heart. He's talking about the heart. And he says something that's difficult to hear, but it's still closely tied to the last thing he said about adultery. See, in that day, women did not have very many rights. In that day, when a woman was married to a man, it was almost seen as if the woman was just another one of the property that the man owned. That's how it was viewed. And men could divorce women, but women could not divorce men. In the Jewish culture, now in the Roman culture, they were just divorcing like crazy. As a matter of fact, it's been said that in the, the Roman culture, in, when Roman became, Rome became an empire, that women would literally judge the years by how many divorces they've had. But in the Jewish culture, women did not divorce men, but men divorced women. And the Old Testament, which again was their Bible, doesn't say a whole lot about divorce. 
But what it does say, I want to read to you. Jesus said this. Again, you have heard the law that says a man can divorce his wife by merely giving her a written notice of divorce. One of the things the Old Testament says about divorce comes in the book of Malachi chapter 2, verse 15. Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and spirit, you are his. And what does he want? Godly children from your union. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Don't miss this. For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel. To divorce your wife is to overwhelm her with cruelty, says the Lord of heaven's armies. So guard your heart. Do not be unfaithful to your wife. The Bible says God hates divorce. And can I be honest with you? I hate divorce as well. And I think many of you would echo the same sentiment going, I hate it. I'm a product of divorce. My mom and my dad divorced, got remarried, divorced again. And I've seen firsthand the fracturing and the pain that comes from us making that decision, people making that choice, that decision to be, to get divorced. It's a painful experience that God hates. But yet in that day, the Jewish people and the Pharisees and their teachings were starting, they were making exceptions for this. And this is the law that they were quoting. They were making this law very liberally. Where's the law, Pastor Gabe? In the Old Testament, there's only one place in the Old Testament that talks about the actual process of divorce. And this is what it says, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Remember, this message is not to condemn. There's light that's going to be shed on this, but it is meant to expose our hearts. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. Suppose a man, this is in the law, suppose a man marries a woman, but she does not please him. Having discovered something wrong with her, he writes a document of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. When she leaves his house, she is free to marry another man. And it goes on to say that if the wife marries someone and then they get divorced because he finds something wrong with her and then the husband wants to come back and marry, God says don't do that because it brings defilement to the land. But then the ESV translation says the same thing this way. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency. Another translation says an uncleanness in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house and so on and so forth. Now in that day, rabbis would take this the law, and they would interpret it so that people could understand, much like a pastor does today or a scholar does today or a biblical teacher does that writes a book. They take a scripture and they help you understand what that scripture was saying. Some rabbis would go as far as to say it's the duty of a husband to divorce a wife that he's displeased with. In that day, there were two big schools of thought about this scripture that we just read. There were two rabbis, two schools of thought, these teachers that taught two different opposing things. And people were left trying to figure out which one was right, who was right. One of the rabbis was a guy by the name of Shemai. Everybody say Shemai. 
Not Shema'i from Lauraville that lives down, the Jewish man, Shema'i. And another one was a man named Hallel. Everybody say Hallel. Not Superman's dad from the movie, another Jewish man, Hallel. Now, Shema'i's school of thought taught that a husband could only divorce his wife for a very serious transgression. Could only divorce her for something very serious. But Hallel comes along and he says that a husband could divorce his wife for a small thing. One of the small things he's actually, he actually said was something as small as burning a meal. If she burned a meal, you could divorce her. That's like, listen, she burns the roux, you're out of here. I bought all this sausage and you're going to burn the roux? Right? And so that's literally, that's what they would do. And so there's this school of thought. Imagine if it was something as small as that, imagine the other things that men were divorcing their wives for. Talk bad about my mama. <laughs> Say it, I got you. So they were going around just divorcing, based off this school of thought, divorcing for whatever they wanted to. These were the, which one do you think was the most popular among the men? The teaching of Hallel. Because they can get away with what they wanted to get away with. And after Jesus, another popular rabbi, rabbi named by the name, a man by the name of Rabbi Akiva came along, and he even said this. He said that if you find another woman more attractive than your wife, you can divorce your wife for her. This, this was the, the teachings that were going around in Israel. And Jesus comes along and brings truth to that. Again, can I remind you what the Bible, the Old Testament says in Malachi? It says God hates divorce. So he comes exposing their hearts with their words, these self-righteous men, these men who I've never committed adultery. Jesus comes and says, really? If you look at her, you have. If you look at her, you have. And he says, the only way that you can not commit adultery, in this case, sending your wife away for adultery, the only way that you can't do that is if she's been unfaithful to you. Not all of the reasons that you're picking. Again, they were sending their wives away for anything, any reason. And Jesus comes exposing the hearts of those who say, I've never committed adultery. Jesus says, number one, yes, you have. And not only have you but because you've sent your wife the way, away the way that you have, you are spreading adultery through the land. That's what he was saying. Not only have you done it, but you are perpetuating it and spreading it throughout the land. Tell me again how righteous you are. Tell me again how great of a spiritual religious leader you are when this is what you're doing. And not only this is what you're doing, for those of them who want marry, this is what you're spreading. You're spreading adultery through the land. Now, in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus goes into more detail about divorce. And we won't go there, but you can go read, that, read it for yourself. He goes into more detail, excuse me, about divorce and teaches what God says about divorce. But can I remind you of something, church? Marriage is not a contract. Marriage is a covenant. And it's a covenant you make with that person and with God. 
When you stand before the witnesses and you commit your life to them, you are committing your life to them under the eyes of God. And you're saying, I'm committing myself to you, and God, I'm committing myself in this to you. That's how serious he takes this relationship. And we live in a day and time, even now, where there's just as much divorce and brokenness in the church as there is in the world. There's seemingly no difference between the two. And Jesus comes and he says, that's not God's will. God hates divorce. Marriage is not a contract. It's a covenant. It's a commitment you make with God. It is not an optional agreement. It is not, I don't like how you're making me feel, so therefore it's over. It's a covenant that we make for life. I know this is not popular teaching, but this is the truth of God's word. Single people, that's why it's so important that you choose well. Because you're choosing how much work you're going to have to put in. You are. I like them. They're hot. They're going to be cold. They're going to be real cold. They've got a six-pack. It's going to be a keg one day. It's going to change. It's important who you pick. And for those of you saying, well, Pastor, I, I chose already. I wish I'd have known this on the front end. That's great, but I chose already. And guess what? I'm not happy. Who said that was the goal? Whoever said that was the goal? What if marriage was not there to make you happy? What if the goal of marriage was to make you holy? What, was, what if the goal, instead of them fulfilling you, the goal was for you to be more like Jesus and help fulfill them? Because we think, listen, if, if I can just, if you have this, this void in you that I can just get them to fill, they will never fill a void in your life that only God was intended to fill. They never will. You set your spouse up for failure. When you put God-sized expectations on them, when you expect them to heal and fix you, I've heard it said many times, not just recently, because some of you may be going, Pastor, you counseled me recently, you said that to me, you're talking to me. Yes, and everybody else. But people say marriage is 50-50. That's a lie. Marriage is a hundred and a hundred. You give 100%, they give 100%. That's the math of heaven. That's the way that it works. That's the only way that it works. That means that when they're not giving 100%, you still are. Why? Because you made a commitment to him to give 100%. That's how it works. And you'll be amazed that as you commit in ways to them because of honoring God, they'll come around. They'll come around. There's a book, and I can't remember which one it is, but may, I love and respect. I think that was it. It talks about the, the ugly cycle of relationships where men need respect and women need to be loved. And it's, that's just, it's a generality. It's a general statement. But by and large, most men would rather be respected than loved. And most women would rather be, let me put it above, women would rather be loved than respected. And when one doesn't get that they stop giving the other. Yeah. 
So you don't respect me, so I'm not going to show you love. Well, you don't show me love, so I'm not going to respect you. And it just keeps going until somebody decides, I'm going to keep my covenant to God, and I'm going to love you even when you don't respect me. This is the teachings of Jesus. What if marriage is there to make you more like him rather than to make you happy? Because our happiness is found in him. It's found in him. Pastor, what are you saying? There's horrible things out there. I get it. And there's times I've counseled women, you need to get away from him. I'm not making an overgeneralized statement, but Jesus makes it clear that the biblical grounds for divorce is not your happiness. It's not your happiness. And if anything, what Jesus is doing is he's propping up women who are being mistreated by men. And he's saying, you religious men who choose to, who act so religious and so pious, I'm not going to let you treat my daughters like this. Because, again, I want you to see the context of the severity of a husband leaving his wife in that day. You left her without a way to provide for herself. You leave her. You give her. You hand her a piece of paper. And now she has to pick up the pieces of her life. And she's, in that day, you couldn't just have a job the way women have a job today. You were devastating her world by doing that yet you act religious and pious because of the teachings of your rabbis. I told you, Jesus exposes our hearts. Then he goes even further to say this. Again, I'm giving you lemonade. (laughs) Verse 33 says, You have also heard that our ancestors were told, you must not break your vows. You must carry out the vows you make to the Lord. But I say, do not make any vows. Do not say by heaven, because heaven is God's throne. In other words, it's not yours. And do not say by the earth, because the earth is his footstool. It's not yours. And do not say by Jerusalem, for Jerusalem is the city of the great king. Do not even say by my head, for you can't turn one hair white or black. This is before hair dye. Just say a simple, yes, I will, or no, I won't. Anything beyond this is from the evil one. Jesus has a high, high standard of integrity for the people of his kingdom. And for those of you saying, I don't make vows, or what is a vow? What are you even talking about? Remember when you were a kid and you would say things like, no, I promise, I swear, by my mama's life. And when you got home, you were hoping she was still alive because you knew you were lying. (laughs) Right? And so we would make these vows, and you would say, I swear, I swear by this. I swear by my life. I swear by this. And then they'd up the ante, and they said, well, do you swear to God? And that's when you go, whoa, I don't play with God. And I believe what Jesus is saying here is there's a bit of a, a gap that isn't really there, but you've created it. In other words, Jesus is saying, just because you don't swear by God, God is still in every one of the lies that you just said. He's not not a part of that. 
Just because you don't say, I swear by God, doesn't mean that your swearing is any less sinful, your lying is any less sinful. He's in it all. So whether you said, I swear to God, or whether you just said, hey, I'm going to do it, and you don't, it's still a lie in the eyesight of heaven. Are y'all tracking with me? Jesus has a high standard of integrity for his people. He's saying, my people are people of their word. If they say they're going to do it, take it to the bank. They're going to do it. If they say that, that this is how it's going to be, then within their power, within their realm of ability, that is how it's going to be. And he says, anything else above that, anything you have to add on to that, Jesus is saying is sinful. Why? Why do we add those things? Why do we say, no, 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 I promise. Why? Because we know people don't trust us. And why don't they trust us? Because we've lied to them. They don't trust you because you have lied to them and deceived them. So you have to up the ante and promise as if you adding those words as anything more to your lack of integrity. Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Your word should be good enough. Wouldn't it be amazing if you went to a business with a fish on it or an OSC sticker on it and you got trustworthy like service and they were truthful in integrity, but the problem is even though they have the stickers, sometimes they still lie to you. Even though they have the fish on it, they still manipulate you. Jesus says, not so with my people. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. We are people of honesty and integrity. This is who we are. Goes on, verse 38. You have heard the law that says... The punishment must match the injury. And an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say, do not resist an evil person. If someone slaps you on the right cheek, offer the other cheek also. Wait a minute, Jesus. If you are sued in court and your shirt is taken from you, give your coat too. If a soldier demands that you carry his gear for a mile, carry it two miles. Give to those who ask and do not turn away from those who want to borrow. Now let's go back to this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth thing. Because that is in the Bible. That was in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. But it was given to those who corporately judge people. It wasn't given on an individual basis. The people in Jesus' day seem to take this command as a personal permission for them to hurt those who hurt them. And some scholars even believe that when this law was given eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, which, again, given to a corporate setting, I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But they believe that this was not given to make sure that everybody, you get the right to give it back to them. No, 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 this was meant so that you don't go overboard. Because it's within our sinful nature to go above when we repay someone. That means that when we, we say, if you hurt my feelings, I hurt your face. You steal my car, I get your house. Right? I lose an eye, you lose your whole head. That's our sinful nature. And, and some scholars believe that Jesus was saying, no, no, no. The, old, the law, excuse me, was saying, there to make sure you don't go above what God is a God of justice. 
He is a God of righteousness. And Jesus isn't talking about doing away with corporate justice. Jesus is not saying as a nation, as a community, you should just be pacifist, that if people come in, you just ransack your community, you just let them do it. That's not what he was saying at all. What he is saying is God is just. There should be jails. There should be police officers. There should be, you should have the ability to call someone when something, somebody's stealing something from you. You shouldn't just go, okay, yeah, no, you can have my house. No, pick up the phone and call the cops. But what he's saying is you don't have the right as an individual to enact justice that should be done corporately. You don't have the right. Jesus is saying, my kingdom is not full of vigilantes. You don't go around, well, they slap me, I'm going to slap them back. They hit me, I'm going to punch them right back in the eye. We treat this like this is noble and righteous. And Jesus is saying, in my kingdom is not. In my kingdom is not. And I don't. I want to read this to you. This is what he's, God has ordained police and authorities. How do I know? Romans 13 tells us this. Everyone must submit to governing authorities. For all authority comes from God. And those in positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in people who are doing right, but in those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear of the authorities? Do what is right, and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. For if you are doing wrong, of course you should be afraid, for they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing those who do what is wrong. Jesus was not doing away with justice. But what he was saying is you don't get the right to take justice into your own hands. You don't have that ability. We don't let evil rule the day in the name of being a pacifist. But on an individual basis, we let God fight our battles. And can I just tell you something? And I wish I had the time to go into, I won't be able to go into more than I did last service, but when you fight your own battle, guess who doesn't fight your battle? God. But when you take a step back and you let him, he is much better at fighting your battles than you are. Saying as Christians, as people in his kingdom, we're not vengeful people. We are giving and forgiving people. And he's even, he's alluding to something he's getting ready to say, but he tells them to go the extra mile. Who was he talking to? Well, in that day, there were Jewish people that were oppressed by the Romans. And the Romans could show up at any point and go, hey, listen, you Jew, carry my bag for a mile. And they despised the Romans. And yet the Romans were there telling them to do these things. And Jesus says, guess what? If they tell you to do that, they tell you to walk for a mile, walk for two. Because I want you to show the world you're different. I want you to show the world that you have the ability to do what his word is getting ready to tell us to do. To love your enemy. To love your enemy. Be humble, not spiteful and prideful. And we excuse it away. That's just my flesh. It is your flesh. God doesn't excuse it away because it's your flesh. 
He doesn't excuse it away because it's the way you were raised or it's the way you were taught. He's teaching you a better way. He's teaching you a better way. His people are giving and forgiving. Matthew 43, uh, chapter 5, verse 43 says this. You have heard the law that says, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. First of all, the law never says hate your enemy. That was an interpretation that was misinterpreted. So Jesus is clearing up one of the bad teachings going around in the land. And then he ups the ante and says, yes, love your neighbor. But I say love your enemy as well. Love your enemy. Some of you that are saying, you can't do this. You're right. You can't do it without him. That's why we need him. You cannot do this. Within your own strength, you need to depend on him to do that. And he will remind you by the Holy Spirit when you need to enact some of these things. I'm telling you this right now. Even as someone, I, I can think of enemies right now in my mind that I pray for. There's one I pray for every day. Every day I pray for an enemy of mine. There have been people who have left out church and bashed me without good reason that I've loved them and I've watched God restore that relationship because I didn't retaliate on them the way that they did to me. This is the way of the kingdom. This is how we fight. We fight by loving and blessing them and letting God deal with their hearts. You ever tried to be mean to somebody who's loving you? You ever been in a fight with your spouse and you were just going at it, and they just smile and tell you how much they love you. It's just not fair. Like, it deflates the whole fight. Like, what are you doing? But can I share something with you? I shared with a great man in our church as well. He came to me at one time, and was like, me and my wife, were fighting, and we're doing these things. And I told him this. Love your enemy. Because right now, your wife is your enemy. That doesn't change because your enemy is in your house. It doesn't change because your enemy has your same last name. Love your enemy. Even when they're coming at you and they're fighting you, and it doesn't mean you don't work through hard things. It doesn't mean you don't speak the truth in love. We do all of those things. Jesus is not saying go be a passivist. Speak the truth. But love them and serve them and bless them. And watch him turn the relationship around. This is the truth of God's word. This is how we fight our battle. Why would Jesus ask us to do these things? He goes on to tell us why. Verse 45. In that way, you will be acting as true children of your Father in heaven. For he gives us sunlight. He gives his sunlight to both the evil and the good. And he sends rain on the just and the unjust alike. If you love only those who love you, what reward is there for that? Even corrupt tax collectors do that. If you are kind only to your friends, how are you different from anyone else? Even the pagans do that. What Jesus is saying is when you live like this, is it hard? You better believe it's hard. But when you do this, you show the world something different. You show them a different system of operating in a different kingdom. And remember who he's talking to, the people of his kingdom. 
When you do that, Jesus says, you are reflecting your Father. When you do this, you are responding the way your Father in heaven does. Because he gives rain to the just and the unjust. He gives sunlight and sunshine to the just and the unjust. Well, I don't know, Pastor, I need to see somebody model this. Read your Bible. Because that's exactly what Jesus did when he died on that cross and he looked around and said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. We first offended him, yet he offered us love and mercy and grace and blessing. There are people right now that you know, you've even asked, God, they're evil and wicked people. Why are they so blessed? He loves them too. He loves them too. Bless your enemies. And then he goes on to say the ultimate. As I close, he says, verse 48, but you are to be perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. Some of you are like, now I'm out. This was hard enough. Now I'm out. I can't do this. You're right, you can't. That's why we need him. That's why we yield to him. That's why we trust in what he did on the cross for us. But that word perfect wasn't talking about sinless. It's really the word complete, mature, having reached a goal. Jesus is challenging them. Remember the very beginning of this. You're not to be like the, your righteousness is supposed to exceed that of the Pharisees who walk around going, I'm good. I'm good enough. Jesus exposes all of that and says, none of you are good enough. None of you are good enough. None of us are good enough. We've not reached the goal. And can I be honest with you? Even according to the Bible, you never will be perfect in the sense of being sinless. But we're maturing and we're reaching the goal. We're pressing on towards the mark for the prize, the high calling by God in Christ Jesus. That's what we're reaching towards. So if you're listening to this going, man, I need Jesus, you're right. So do all of us. And that's the point. I want you to close your eyes and bow your heads. I want to pray for you. Lord, I pray just like the psalmist did for myself and for all of us, that may the words of my mouth and the meditation, the intentions, the motivation of my heart be acceptable to you. Oh, Lord, my strength, my rock, my redeemer. Lord, deal with our hearts. Deal with our self-righteousness but help us to live like the people of your kingdom. Help us to, to view the world the way you view it, to walk with high integrity, to walk with love, and to be giving and forgiving, to honor the covenant of marriage that you created that represents you, Jesus, and the church. Help us to be followers that depend on you, that when we mess up, Lord, we come to you we boldly come to your throne of grace asking for forgiveness in humility, but boldly knowing that it's what you want to give to us anyway. 
you shed your blood so that we could be forgiven of all of the things that I've mentioned in this message and more. Let our hearts be pure. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. If you're here this morning and you say, Pastor Gabe, I'm not a part of this kingdom, and that's obvious. Jesus said this. He said that you can't see the kingdom unless you're first born again. How do I do that? It's as simple as ABC. A, you admit. Admit what? That you're a sinner. You're honest about the sinfulness of your heart. You say, God, I, need, I, I, I don't come with my own righteousness. I need yours. B, you believe that Jesus died on that cross for your sin to make you righteous before God. And see you confess that he is now Lord of your life and that you are committing to following him and doing it his way, not yours. If that's you, you say, Pastor Gabe, I want to be that. I want to be born again. I want my sins forgiven. I need to be made right with him. This is your moment. He wants it more than you want it he did the hard work for you to have it. If you say, that's me, I want you on the count of three, I just want you to lift up your hand. I want to acknowledge who I'm going to pray with, and all of us are going to pray a prayer of surrender out loud to Jesus today, and today is going to be the beginning of the kingdom for you, a new start, a new life. One, two, three, and that's you lifted up. Thank you. I see your hand. Anyone else? Say, this is my moment. I want to be born again. Thank you, sir. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand back there. See your hands in front. Praise God. Anyone else? Keep it up high. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. This is your moment. Thank you, ma'am. I see your hand. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, young man. I see your hand. Praise God. Thank you. You can put it down. Church, let's pray with each and every one of these precious saints of God as they become just that, saints of God. They surrender, and it's not the words that are going to save you. It's your surrendered heart, the grace of God, and your faith in Jesus, what he's done. Say these words with me. Say, Dear Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. I believe on the cross you died for my sin, for my guilt, for my shame. I believe you faced hell for me so I would not have to go there. And you rose again from the dead to give me a place in heaven, purpose on this earth, and a relationship with the Father. I repent of my sin. I turn away from it, and I choose to follow you. And from this moment on, God, you are my Father. Jesus, you're my Lord and Savior. Holy Spirit, you're my helper. Heaven is now my home. In Jesus' name, amen. Come on, church, let's celebrate with every person that prayed that prayer to be born again. Welcome to the family of God. If you're wondering where do I go from here, number one, keep coming. Keep coming. Keep learning what it means to follow him. Number two, let somebody know the decision that you made. You can fill out the card in the pew pocket in front of you. 
and turn that in and we'd love to follow up with you and help you with that decision you've made or if you're a guest please fill that card out and let us know that you are here visiting with us but we want to help you on this journey of following Jesus and becoming his disciple on your way out today I want to remind you also have lemonade outside and just a whole Hawaiian feel get to know somebody connect with somebody that maybe you don't know and don't forget next week water baptisms outside please stand to your feet I want to pray for you this morning Father, I pray for your people. I pray that you bless us and you would make your face shine on us in our going out and in our coming in and all, God, that we put our hands to that it would prosper and be blessed for your great name and for the sake of your great kingdom. As a church, I pray that we would be a people, God, who walk in the fear of the Lord as a pure church, a powerful church, walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and a persistent church, even in the face of challenges. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.